This is Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. A window to the Latin universe. Stanford, 90.1 FM. Radio Atenea Americana. This is Atenea Americana. Bilingual house of culture. On the air and online. Radio Atenea Americana. Su casa de la cultura en la radio y online. Para la radio 90.1 KCSU Stanford. I am Isabel Juves. Isabel Juves. In Atenea Americana, we are talking with author and professor Carmen Bullosa. She was born in Mexico City, but now she lives in New York. She is a multifaceted and prolific writer known for her prowess as a poet, novelist, and playwright. Her literary work revolves around the integrated themes of feminism, the interaction between religion, superstition and skepticism, and the reevaluation of gender roles within the rich tapestry of Latin American culture and Hispanic traditions. With a very impressive size of work, she has published 19 novels. Her work also dwells in different periods, locations, and characters, but with her unique and unmistakable stylistic imprint. In her latest book, The Book of Eve, Carmen Bullosa reinterprets the book of Genesis, but this time from Eve's point of view, effectively deconstructing the patriarchal norms that have, for long, underpinned our understanding of the world, from the origins of the astronomy to the domestication of animals and even the cultivation of land and pleasure. Bullosa weaves the narrative that shifts the focus to the feminine perspective while explaining the stories of the creation. In the book of Eve, the narrative that has shaped the perception of womanhood for centuries, which in most cases makes narratives that have unfortunate and groundless motion of women, are shifted. Through this exploration, Bullosa challenges and dismantles this deeply ingrained perilous perspective that has enabled violence against women. Her contribution to literature have earned her a Guggenheim Fellowship and many other recognitions. As women from all around the world lose their ground in the fight for equality, as mainstream education acknowledges that traditional history is told from the perspective of the winners and the strongest, and it doesn't always portray the real account of what really happened, we are presented with a what-if story that also explains the main points, bringing a fresh, fun, but also frightening side to the story of the Genesis. Stay with us for this and more about Carmen Bullosa. 
And remember that these and all shows are at standforhispanicbroadcasting.org and that you can find this podcast and radio show in any of your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us in Atenea Americana. Thank you so much for being able to do this interview, even though you have been traveling so much lately. Well, you have been traveling a lot since you came here to Stanford almost two weeks ago at the Center for Latin American Studies. Uh, but here you are uh, all the way from New York, live on the radio with me. Thank you, Isabella. I, I'm, I'm very happy to be here again with you. I mean, I was in the other coast uh, some days ago, as you mentioned. And I'm happy to return, though it's uh, via Zoom, it feels I'm back. So I, well, I, I was really amazed by this book. And uh, so I went and uh, checked some of your other books and I see, uh, well, the richness of all your literature. L let's start in general, then we come back to the book. So, and I've seen a lot of your literature goes around topics of feminism. Uh, you also have a lot of period historic novels, but it, somehow they are also involved in this uh, tradition of magical realism. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about your process and what inspired you and about yourself? Yes, of course. Uh, this is the story. I started writing very young. I was 15 when I decided I was a writer. I mean, it was a uh, in a way, it was a fantasy. I hadn't written anything. I do not come from a family of writers. Uh, my father was totally in a different trade. My mother had died. And I decided as if it, I had been struck by a fairy in the middle of the night. I felt I was a writer. And I started writing very short stories, then poems. I started publishing poems pretty young, uh, 21. 22, uh, 23, I had my first book published or, or, or booklet of poetry. Um, and uh, from there, I very young also, I, I wrote my very first novel based on a partially a family drama, the death of my mother, my stepmother. It was an act of rage. But I didn't publish it immediately. It was very violent. I had personal reasons to keep it away for the moment, uh, but also because I had received very nice reviews as a poet. I was highly considered and I was very jealous of that. I considered that to be a part of my person and I didn't want it challenged. Or, But then I wrote my second novel. And when I had already two novels in my drawer, I said to myself, you are doomed, you are a novelist too. So you have to start publishing in order. I did like the first novel, I still like it, though it's very violent. And I published the first, the first and the second had to do with uh, childhood, 
I sacked my own childhood. I stole things from it. I made an act of piracy of my own self to create because a book has a life of its own. So though the first one was this act of rage, it was also building a story and building it, having it in the core, the family violence. So it's fractured and, and strange to say so. And then from there on, I also felt out of respect for what a book is, a novel is, a fiction work is, I didn't want to just be like using the same chewing gum that I had already taken out the flavor from. So I started going to other themes also because I had curiosity about them or I felt attracted for them. And I jumped from one to other, to other, to other, to other, um, using sometimes historical figures the first time I used Moctezuma, the last emperor in power of the Aztec Empire, I imagined, because it felt in there, something was there, and also because in the Mexican uh, world, cultural world, we also have very present our ancient past and a kind of a malignant adoration. We adore the Indian past, but we despised our present Indians. I mean, we, I don't, I say it's a nation thing. So I I brought back Moctezuma. Uh, he pops out of an ant hole, an ant house, that for them was a sacred place. And three women of my generation in the mid 80s uh, find him and pick him up and take him, one of them even, to bed. And that's the novel. While he's trying to understand where is he, he can't, uh, uh, he can't believe that's Tenochtitlan. So it's like confronting two times. That novel is called Llanto, it's not translated into English. And, and then from there, I went to the Caribbean Sea, the pirates. I wrote the uh, uh, two novels on pirates and one radio radio novel on pirates. The third one on women pirates, the first two, it was my exploration of what happens to a utopic world where women are forbidden, which is historical. That, that was the adventure of the Brothers of the Coast. Uh, and I wrote it uh, using the materials that are written from the time and also making it very very intimate for me, very personal, and, and leaving that uh, literary adventure and, and the writing adventure. Uh, then I got ambitious. I think it was like my novel number nine. I have published 19 novels. So maybe my novel number 10 was uh, I went to the Battle of Lepanto, Cervantes. I stole a character from Cervantes, and I told what I thought was the real story of the gypsy girl, La Gitanilla, one of his short novellas. But I then recreate with her the expulsion of the Moors. Uh, I take Cervantes into the galley of the Battle of Lepanto. The girl is there. She's in the battle because there was a Maria La Bailaora in the in the main boat of the Spaniards fighting against the Moors, which is a, a nonsense because it cannot be that a gypsy dancer was in the side of the Spanish. It, it was on the, she had to be on the other side. The gypsies had been also persecuted. The Jews had been thrown out of Spain. The Moors had been thrown out of Spain. And the gypsies were considered, if they stayed, they were like slaves. So as, as the Moors. So all was like, I did it. I did a 
recorrection of fables in that novel. Uh, it's a very long novel, uh, recreating also the language of the time, but making it also very contemporary. That is the Battle of Lepanto. And the last one I published, I'm not going to go one by one, I'm skipping. <laughs> I went already into number 10. The My novel 19 is the Book of Eve. Yes. I... I dis I it's not that I decided. It's very peculiar because all of my novels, when I look at them at a distance nearby or when I'm no longer writing them, I realize how entangled they are with a situation, historical situation of the moment. So in the case of the Battle of Lepanto, it was when Bush declared war against the Arabs because they were the enemies. And I went, I, I had this attraction suddenly for the moment when the Spanish crown and the European world declared war to the Turks. Yeah. Well, the French were a little bit in the other side, but most of the European, the Western world. So I, it was like reproducing that battle. I got that attraction. And in the case of the Book of Eve, it is simultaneous to the new female feminist uprising, the new uh, wave of feminisms, this plural world of feminisms. And I, it's not that I voluntarily said, oh, the girls are marching in the street, I'm with them. It's that uh, that uh, a novelist, uh, we, we work with, it's true that we work alone, isolated, uh, on this side of the window to say so, but it's true that language is something communal, belongs to all of us. And a real writer captures the atmosphere of its time in the writing. In the case of the poets, it's beautiful to read poems from other centuries because you read them aloud and you are able to listen how even the streets sound not only the obsessions of the time, but also captures the atmosphere of its time. So I read Ruben Darío, uh, in, the, in this case, a poet that started very young and lived through many technological transformations of his, during his decades of life. And uh, it, it, you, you listen to the train suddenly appearing in his town, the boat he used first a slow one, and then it changed into much faster one. The sound of the streets changing, the cities where he lived, and you listen in it, listen that in very personal poems of a writer that had himself his own voice, but there's no voice without the others. So what happened with the Book of Eve is that I was there, and Eve had to tell her real story. She had to say, come on, come on, come on. I'm not that mute person that made only one mistake, only one act, and it threw us all out of Eden that was perfect. No, 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 no. Eden was not perfect. We are not Edenites, and that's why if we consider ourselves Edenites, we have to destroy the earth. We despise the earth. That's the Western attitude has been. That's why we are where we are, ecologically speaking. Uh, no, she says, Eden was tasteless. Time didn't exist. It was so more than boring. There was no life there. So the minute she sees Earth, she falls in love with Earth. And also she decides which, which gender she wants to have. She creates her own clitoris. She goes through 
the real the real leaf and it's her voice and i was lucky to to find it i got curious about the figure of eve i started reading writing about it and then suddenly eve started speaking and i transcribed transcribed i was her secretary you know and that's the novel yeah that's uh but it is uh, uh well at least the three books that i read before eve from you uh you do have these uh, heroines, these uh, very strong female characters that come and tell the story, but they tell the story of a time, like for example, in uh, Duerme or in Living Tabasco, both of them are different times, but they both of them are revolutionary, strong uh, characters that come and change the environment or try to, they they are fighting uh, uh, to, to to give their voice and to be themselves in this world. How do you build these characters? And uh, I think that I heard to you like before that these characters actually speak to you. They come uh, to you, I suppose, from different moments in your life, as you said, for things that are happening around. Uh, how do they come to you and how do they influence you in your in your writing? Well, I I I say always that I don't believe in inspiration. It's not that I suddenly get it. I think it's the profession. I'm daily working on my book, whichever book it is. And uh, I, I, even when I finish a novel, I already have another one waiting for me. I go from one to the other one. And because I do this like not waiting for it to happen. It's not like I sit in my sofa or I take long, long walks saying, ah, let's see what happens. Is that I am, I'm always writing and I'm always reading and, uh, and thinking and feeling what's around and reading the news and reading classics and, and, and they, they happen to be there. Even when I had my pirate period, to call it that way, uh, I remember that before that, Erna Pfeiffer, who had translated a book of mine in German and who is a very serious academic and was interested in women writers in Latin America, is interested, asked me in an interview uh, why had I only had female characters in my books by then. And I told her, I couldn't ever write a book of men. I don't understand them. You really have to be crazy to be a man. They have a different logic. And months later, I was writing a novel where all the characters are men, except one woman that appears at the beginning and is disguised as a man, as a male. I took her later to write Duerme. But I, I had the intellectual interest of exploring a world where women are forbidden. And what happens when the ethics of masculinity or the masculine ethic world uh, uh, gets all the power of a community? So even they had wonderful premises we don't believe in private property. Everything belongs to everybody. We don't care where were you born. We are all equals. That's what the Brothers of the Coast said. So they found that this community, their only goal was to dispossess the Spaniards that had stolen the things from the locals. Mm -hmm. 
and they despised them and hated them and they didn't want to to own things they just wanted to take it away from their illegitimate owners all sounds beautiful but women were forbidden and even though their blacks whites yellows all colors of the world were equal if they had been born of the daughter of a king the son of a king was the same as the son of a slave but women not and that cutting out half of the population and one what being a woman means turned into a a bomb of violence inside their own community. So it was for me very interesting to explore and really against my own instincts. In the meantime, my children were babies. I love to cook. I love family life. I like the domestic world. So imagine, it was like I was writing those things saying, what a nightmare where am I so it it's not that I write about myself but it's like I write about my curiosities and by by what is floating around because those were the days when being a woman writer and I'm talking of the early 90s was not easy I mean it was like for my generation you wrote, whatever you wrote, you were always 10 steps behind any male writer. We were considered bad writers because we were women. We were considered less. So it it was really living through that, telling that tale, not addressing it like a politician saying, you know, this is wrong, this is wrong, but addressing it like a fiction writer and I did and then obviously my own proclivities for these women that are strong and that are adventurous I like them I love them like yesterday well the last days I reread Margot Glant's wonderful memoir it's translated as the family tree genealogias in Spanish and there she says when I was a little girl, I wanted to be Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be those women that accompany the adventures. I wanted to be Flash Gordon. And I was so taken again that I reread it saying, oh, yes, I also wanted to be Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. Not in my case, I did not precisely Flash Gordon because it was not the hero of my generation. But I wanted to be in that other side. Obviously, because we were, we, I mean, Margot Glantz is Margot Glantz. And so I've been like recreating those lives like instinctively. It, that is like in my own instinct. And in the case, uh, for example, I never imagined I was going to work anything with Anna Karenina because she's a victim. But rereading Anna Karenina because somebody asked me if I would write a review of the new version, filmic version of Anna Karenina. And I said, let me consider it. I didn't write the review. But rereading Anna Karenina, I saw that Tolstoy says that she wrote a book and then he forgets it. And I understood that if he hadn't forgotten it, the book that she had written, her life would have been different if she would have finished the manuscript, given it to the publisher that already was claiming for it inside Tolstoy's book, 
she would then have earned some money and then she would have had a life of her own and she wouldn't have been addict to laudanos and she wouldn't have involuntarily killed herself as happens in the book. So I had to write her book. <laughs> From her and book. also I had to give her her adult children. She didn't see her adult children as my mother did not. So I paid a debt to my mother and I paid that debt to Anna Karenina. And I saw her differently. No, so you see, it's like something that rolls uh, rolls with my generation and with me. Uh, how, how do you choose the medium through which you're going to tell each story? Uh, you Now you write mostly novels or you go back to poetry? Do you do essays? How do you choose... Okay. In what way each character is going to tell their own story? Isabel, I love that question. <laughs> and I myself wonder. Because when I start an adventure, I don't know what I'm going to write. In the case of uh, the book of Anna that I just mentioned, I I did first the verse version, in verse, more a poem than a narration. From the eyes of a little kid, her character that I imagined then was her novel, and it didn't work. And I thought, this won't work. And then I saw the novel. But I, I had already said, I lost all this time exploring it. Well, lost, one never loses. Uh, but I want, I have to go otherwise. And with Eve, it happened to me something similar, but it was not from poetry to novel but from essay to novel, because I got, I, I couldn't understand why we have that bland figure. I mean, just compare it to other mythical figures. They are strong. They can destroy us. They can create us in the Mesoamerican world. So I had this like, what the hell? Why does Eve is Eve that way? And I discovered to my astonishment that the former figures of Eve versions of Eve, she was different. She was not dispossessed of sex. It was not like there was a Lilith and there was Eve. No, no, no. Eve had it all. Uh, Eve had voice. Uh, even Sor Juana says that it's Adam's apple. She doesn't talk of Eve's apple. And in fact, we know that it's called Adam's apple, this part of the body of the man. So it means he was the responsible. So all that, all that came and in the beautiful book of Robert Graves and Patai, reading the all the footnotes where I could find more information about that former, even looking into them. I was fascinated by it. And I thought, well, I'll write an essay. And then I said, Oh no, no, why don't you explore what women writers that you love have done with them and with Abel and with Cain and with the Babel Tau, Babel Tau, Babel, however you pronounce that, and 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 with Noah. Find, find that. So I started doing that and I gave voice to every writer, but that didn't make a book and was repetitious sometimes and didn't have the the form. So I dropped it to thinking, okay, I learned, I'm doomed, I won't write anything about Eve. And then suddenly Eve started talking. So I don't know when I start a book. 
uh, really don't know. Well, when she started writing, then I thought, how's this book going to be? It's not like Kate let it loose. I do my little maps when I already discover it. But it takes some time to discover it. And it's not like I say, oh, now I'm going to write a poem. No, I, I, I don't know. I'm now in another one. I've been working already three years on it, I think. And I still don't know how it'll land. I have done many maps because I have thought, oh, is this? And then it's not. And then another, and no, it's not. So I don't know. There's a, there's a, a, an erratic um, self inside of me that sometimes find, finds uh, tierra firme. How do you say tierra firme in English? Land. 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 Or yeah, yes, I'm, I'm like lost in an ocean, turbulences and things, and finding and smelling there, and libraries in the middle of all that. Don't ask me how. And then suddenly, land, and and there I am. No, and so I don't know if that land is going to be a what kind of land. Yeah. It's beautiful because it's always. Uh, uh, I have had many lives by now. Yes, that's amazing. And, uh, well, like, we, we get it from the other side. We we live the life of the characters in the book. You write them. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Atenea Americana, your house of culture in the radio and online. In this bilingual show, I bring you every week one hour in English and one hour in Spanish, opening a window to the cultural Hispanic world. You can hear in the intro and at the final of the show, as well as right now, music from the legend of Latin jazz, Oscar Hernandez. This and all my shows are in stanfordhispanicbroadcasting.org, where I wait for your comments. I invite you to be part of this. And remember that today we are talking with Professor Carmen Bullosa about her book, The Book of Eve, and about her work. It, the blending of this reality and fantasy, you know, I, I feel like, well, us coming from Latin America, we, we do understand it as, as part of the absurd and the, the absurdity of life, which is also magical in a way. It, and, and then your novel is pretty much, you know, it brings a lot of these, uh, well, the fantasy, like uh, uh, Cortázar used to call it, uh, but it's more of this magic reality uh, and this uh, way to tell the story. Uh, and uh, what are you think uh, are and the difference between writing and your reality between uh, the real and the surreal and uh, the boundary between the fantasy and and the real life and uh, how to how to express it because i think a lot of it is you know it's just uh, it's a metaphor of things that are actually happening and how to explain the absurdity of many things in life but how do you uh, how do you navigate this boundary and how does it express in, in the way how you write or tell a story? Uh, in the beautiful long poem of Sor Juana, she reproduces what Ptolomeo had uh, written in century, many centuries before um, on what is the human body. 
So in the human body, the organs are described, you know, the liver, the stomach, the heart, the lungs, uh, how we inspire, inspire our intestines. And then in that same order of classifications comes the soul, los humores. And as Sor Juana says, comes what is our capability of imagining and thinking in that same category. And as if it was part of an equal equality of, of circumstances, to say so, with the lungs, the, with the brain, the humores, the, 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 the liquids, to say so, humores is not liquids, but the soul, the imagination, our, our possibility to speak. And we know that we speak because it's imprinted in the form of our brain. If we don't have the Broca area, if we have a damage in the Broca area, we will have problems speaking. If we have, if we hurt parts of our brain or our body, then we are, there's something that we need to recover otherwise using also our own body. So I think that this uh, Western division of this is rational and this is imagination. Uh, I think it's a very recent and somebody would say, I wouldn't, but somebody would say, well, it comes with capitalism. It comes from a, from a culture that decides that our imagination is not worth it, though we daily live with our imagination. I mean, just go out to the street. You see the lights? What was that done? I mean, that's done through imagination. Forget about the lights. Look at the sidewalk. Who did the sidewalk? Our imagination. Who did our home? Our imagination. Who did our clothes? Our imagination. Why do you need clothes? We are the only nude animal, says Maria Zambrano, the philosopher. We need our imagination to survive, to live, to be, and to understand the world. So I, in my case, I would say that my biggest literary influence considered as such was listening to the Grimm's stories, the real ones, the complete ones, listening to them and listening to the stories, popular folk stories that were told by the nannies at home, uh, the workers at the lab of my grandmother, my grandmother herself telling tales that's the folk of Mexico. So, and there, magical things happen. Don't tell me that at the Green Brothers stories, magical things don't happen. They do. And why do they happen? Because it's the only way that we can express our anxieties and express our understanding of the world. And also, I come from a very Catholic family. In that very Catholic family, I read the Bible. Lots of passages of the Bible were read continuously. Don't tell me that there's no magical realism. So that's the world I respond to as a writer. Yes, 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 I read Victor Hugo. I did. And it was very, it gave an imprint for me. Le Miserable was something that 
I rethought the 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 social order when I was 11 years old and I reread it was like oh life is so unfair cannot be we have to change the way we live you know all the whole thing realism is also very important but this uh, way of understanding maybe because I haven't killed my childhood maybe because I have that life very uh, very alive I remember what it was to be I don't know it's not that I remember is that I feel many times like the child feels frequently. And that's not because I'm a female, because I decided to be a female. No, it's not because of that. It's because there's a way of understanding reality that is very valuable, and I haven't let it go. And I need, I mean, I I, I try to be sensible. Yes, I try to be sensible, but I think it's very sensible to consider that imagination is a protagonist of our lives. So I I have it there. Maybe, sometimes not. I don't know. Because I think it's, I for me, it's not a, a stranger that suddenly intrudes and tells me, tilt away, this, this way. No, 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 it's not I tilt away. I try to be sensible all the time, using what is necessary and that, also what it's truth, because every book is very peculiar because a writer discovers its own book after working a lot. And then the writer kind of is like the archaeologist taking out the debris and what it so that you see the whole body as it is. And that body is my creation, but mainly is our creation, is is a, a figure of our times. And that's what's the the, the the profession of a writer to really respect it and don't put your voice and destroy the nose of that beautiful being or cut a leg of that beautiful being. You have to be respectful. And it responds to a community thing. And that community is also done by my, my corpses, my dead people. I think of my maternal grandmother, but now I also think of my paternal grandmother. I've been thinking of them and my father uh, telling, reading us aloud in the nights and my mother dying so young and so full of, of life. She was so vital. My father was not. And he died old and she died young. So I have them and others, others, all those that emigrated, moved from one country to the other. I mean, they are my 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 corpses, my dead people, they are with me. Your stories, their stories there with you. Yes, their uh, stories and their and their presence and their flesh. After all, we're all stories. We try to make a good one. <laughs> and uh, uh, so you you dwell well in this in this book and i think in most of your book you dwell uh, a war between faith and skepticism between uh, religion and uh, uh, superstition uh, how do you approach these these themes of you know uh... maybe because i don't believe in anything <laughs> I mean, in a way there's always a, a skeptic I mean, I have this enthusiasm for everything, this fascination for all, and but inside me, I'm also very skeptical. I I really like have this distance, 
and this laughter, I I kind of have this tendency of laughing of everything. And laughter is beautiful laughter because laughter builds a distance and builds a bond. So I laugh intensely of things that I adore also. Uh, and that thing, uh, it, it's present in, in, in authors that I love. It's peculiar because I'd never thought of it till your question, but I have it. And I, it, 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 it surprises me when I read it in, in others that I see how they laugh of, I think of some essays, personal essays of wonderful Philip Lopate, where he's really cracking and knows with him of things that he adores and that we do love them too. So even, and he, he doesn't do magic. He does realism and he talks about things that are very close to him. And one loves them and laughs as a reader because he has this skepticism to say so. And it doesn't mean non-loving quality. So I have it for many things, um, including, I don't know, I know I'm not a, a believer, but I remember a dear friend of mine, Italian, whom I adore, poet and essayist, was once at home here in Brooklyn and, and she wants to, she wanted to go to mass because she goes to mass all Sundays. And I respectfully said, Oh, let's go to this. It has a beautiful church that, by the way, has been destroyed here in Fourth Avenue. And we entered what I thought was a Catholic mass and the minister was a woman dressed in white and they were all black and they were wonderful. And they stopped their, their ceremony to greet us. And they sang. And it was so touching. And it, at the same time, it was so hilarious that we were there because it was a, it was a, a lack of, uh, of, of, of understanding of it all of mine that brought us to this situation. And my dear friend Marta was very touched. It was wonderful. I was touched. It was wonderful. And I'm no believer. But I was touched, I mean, almost to tears it was so beautiful and their faith and their and their bonding and their respect and their giving us their hands and welcoming us. Oh, it was so beautiful and so laughable. So it I think both things can perfectly go along, and I it might be an attitude I have. Uh, towards all the things I love and writing too. And that might make me more prone to, I don't, I don't put a line, oh, well, this is fantastic, you know, and this is realistic. I could not have written Eve. I mean, Eve starts like science fiction. I mean, it starts like they don't have feet. They are horse fitted and, and they have, they, they are something they have no, their bodies like Ken and Barbie, they have no private parts. They do them themselves. So all this is, she does it first and then he imitates her because all the novel, the novel has the premise that the envy is not the envy of the pennies, is the envy of envy of the clitoris. And I do believe on it. I, myself, I sympathize with that premise of the book.
So I, I and but it's not like a line, you know. This is this way. This is that way. No. And at the same time, I just follow the steps of the Genesis, but I dance them differently. I how do I dance them? Eve says how to dance it, because in Adam's version. That's the one we read in the Genesis. There is a logic. In Eve's version, there is another logic. Cain is the one that cultivates the land. Abel is the one that enslaves the animals and kills them and brings death to our table. And with it, he brings violence to the house. So all, all the logic comes different. Noah is different. Noah is the guy that when he sees a son watching, knows that a son of his has seen him totally drunk, without clothes, sleeping, he decides to send him to exile. That is so cruel. So Noah is different. Babel is different. All, all, the, all the decks fall differently in Eve's logic. And I respect it. And I don't divide I don't put like my own, I don't put a criteria different from her logic. And I do laugh a lot. And she laughs too. And I hope that the reader also laughs. Yes, and even the, I love the art of the of the book. It's very intentional. I love it. How do you, how do you choose what, what the cover will be. I don't know. It's, it's, it seems like a silly thing, but somehow it's so connected. <laughs> it's a perfect cover and it's not me the one to praise, but the publisher. They offered me that cover and I almost jumped out of happiness because it is a perfect cover. And it's a, a designer that obviously read the book, a team, read the book. They read the book they discussed the book and they came out with the perfect uh, cover. I wish all books had that kind of cover because it's not thinking of how do I sell books is how do I present the book honestly? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's an honest, uh, perfect uh, uh, cover for the book. You, you, you write, uh, well, I, I, so far, I read three of your books, four of your books in English, and then one essay in Spanish. You do you write in both languages? You write mostly in Spanish. I only write the, well. I mostly write in Spanish. Always, all what is fiction, what what is poetry, and I only wrote because I dream in Spanish because I. I, I I think in Spanish because I live in Spanish, though I live in New York and I'm married to an American. Talking of which, the only time of my life I ever wrote in English was, I had a question. And the question was when Mexico suddenly turned to be so violent and I couldn't understand it. I said to myself, what the hell is happening in, in Mexico? When President Calderon declared the war against drugs. so. I did what I always do with my novels. I started looking back, trying to understand in the past and in the present. So I went back, back, back. The present didn't give enough answers. And I went back in history. But nothing really made sense. And while we 
sit down and eat daily, Mike and Carmen, we have long conversations of what we are writing and our, our, our doubts. And it was very frequent that I said, but I don't understand why in the Mexican Revolution this happened with drugs. And he said, oh, well, you know, in that time in the USA. So suddenly we started building the dialogue. And I couldn't finish my damn manuscript that I said I was going to write in Spanish and the translator was going to translate it. And Mike told me, you won't ever have it, dear. This is a story that doesn't happen only in Mexico. We did that war, meaning your country and mine. So let's write this book together. But these are the rules. So I had to go through the painful adventure of following his rules. He doesn't read in Spanish, so I had to write in English. Uh, and he it could only be facts. And everything I said there needed to be sustained by bibliography that he could read. So it was painful. And we put a timeline. We had to finish it because he has his ambitious work of the history of New York. He was going to go out of trade to say so momentarily. So he only gave me three months and I worked like crazy. I had already done most of the work, but I had to then have it. I had to deliver my part in Spanish, put it in his desk with the sustain historical and then his part in English back to me with questions of what I had done and etc. So I did it once. And you know something? I hope never again. It was for me like living without my dreams. And and it was like being awake all day. And I like to be in that area where you are not awake, not asleep. And you are imagining and you are in another. I live in a, I write with that. So that book was written only with my right hand, which happens to be pretty rotten because I still write everything by hand. And, and, and the hand's Many years. I mean, I'm about to be 70 years. So, and I've written since I was 15. So, my right hand is a little bit rotten. <laughs> and the left is still better. So, I had to do that all only with the right. And it was very difficult and uh, pleasureless. Plus, the theme was terrible. So many corpses, so many corpses. And then I wrote a poem while all this was happening in Spanish La Patria Insomne. Uh, so, it was like, it's what it is. <laughs> Reality is not as fun sometimes. <laughs> no, nope. well, it can be. <laughs> also, imagination is not necessarily fun, but it's a territory that illuminates with other light our cruel realities. Yes. Yes. So, if if the world is inspiring you and what is happening around, uh, what what do you think is the is the next step? Where are you looking right now? Well, I have a problem. I've been working these three years with this book, and uh, really, my head has been twisted. Meaning, I'm looking really at the past, and I'm kind of revising the. No, I know I am reviewing, remeasuring the role that our Mexican relationship with the, the East, the Manila Galleon world. And I've been looking at that and looking at stories I didn't know. I didn't know we imported, we, Mexico traded people from those 
lands, uh, most of them smuggling them through the coast of Acapulco, not necessarily the port, downloading them before they came to the official downloading, and all the culture that came there. Sor Juana Place being represented in Manila. Uh, so I've been working on that, uh, following some characters that I thought they were only merchants, but they brought me to the Manila Galleon. And I've been like remeasuring and rethinking, and I hope I can land that book. Though life has been so painfully uh, heartbreaking the last uh, months, from the smokes of the forests of Canada intruding in our nose, here to what's happening now in the Middle East. To I don't know if I'll be able to uh, finish this adventure. I hope yes, because the characters are wonderful. They won't ever let me rest in peace if I don't write their story. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much for for being part of our of, of our show today and for. Uh, for for coming to Stanford with the book of if and and well and thank you so much for writing it is it is very powerful and it's very it's very nice that it exists. <laughs> Hi, Isabel. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Muchísimas gracias. Thank you. And this was Atenea Americana. Atenea Americana. Americana. Stanford 90.1 FM. Radio Atenea Americana. A window to the Latin universe. This is Radio Atenea Americana. Bilingual house of culture. On the air and online. Su casa de la cultura en la radio y online. Para Radio 90.1 KCSU Stanford. I am Isabel Jubes. Isabel Jubes. Vuelve pronto. Atenea Americana. From Stanford to the world. Remember to come back soon. Ciao. See you later. <laughs> <laughs>